0: My name's Lana and I'm the host of Get Hungry. I was born and grew up on Boon country and also have a very personal connection to my own Jewish culture and heritage. On behalf of the team producing this podcast, we pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land the Australian Swinburne campuses are located on, and where this podcast was recorded. We also pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and aspirations of Aboriginal Australia. We must remember that under the concrete and the asphalt, this land is, was, and always will be traditional Aboriginal land. The rich storytelling history of the world's oldest living culture is what we proudly pay homage to when we share stories on this podcast. This is Get Hungry, a show where we give you a taste of what career success looks like by talking to some of the most successful people in different industries and learn how they got to where they are today. I'm your host, Lana Freed, and I'm a psych student at Swinburne University of Technology. And like a lot of you, I often wonder what it is that makes a person successful. In this show, I'm gonna to talk to people from different industries who've asked themselves the same questions as you and I. Where am I going and how do I get there? We'll grab a bite of food or even a coffee from somewhere near Swinburne. Then we'll find a spot on campus to have a chat. We'll talk about everything, will explore the successes that they've had, and just as important, the mistakes and missteps that they've learned from. So let's get into it. Today, I'm catching up with David Banger. He's a senior managing partner at APAC for Infotech, and he's had such an impressive career. He studied business and analytics at Swinburne and built his career overseas, working for companies like Microsoft before coming back to Melbourne. And in a real full circle moment, he even lectures at Swinburne. In today's chat, you'll hear how setting goals early can really help you succeed. David will talk about how he worked towards his goal of living and working overseas. He'll explain why he believes you should talk about ideas, not people. And David will share how he went from being a guy who didn't finish school to managing a team at Microsoft. We're meeting at a cafe called Short Straw, which is just down the road from Swinburne. And we're going to grab a coffee and have a chat. So let's go. I am here at Short Store Cafe today, just off of Glenferry Road. It's quite a cool little rustic cafe. It's playing some vibey music inside, so why don't we head on in and meet our special guest? David? Hi. Hi, I'm Lana. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Um, Why don't we get into it? Sounds good. I always have a latte.
1: I'm going to have a long black because my good friend in Italy, Marcello, one of my former Microsoft colleagues, when I was in Milano with him, took me to lunch and he said, "I'm going to buy your coffee, David, but you cannot have any milk in your coffee oh God, after, I would not after lunchtime."
0: Is it because the milk makes you like feel heavy?
1: I think like... it's an Italian thing. And if you order a latte in Italy, It's just milk. Yeah.
0: My mum ordered a mocha in America and was given milk, but I don't think that makes sense. I just don't think they knew what she was asking. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now that we've got our coffees in hand, why don't we head on back to campus? That's great. I was excited to talk to David about his experience both working and traveling around the world. For our chat, we made our way across campus towards the E.N. building. Now, the E.N. building is kind of iconic, and David is a former Swinburne student. So to kick off our conversation, I asked David if he had any memories from his time there.
1: The E.N. building, it's a rite of passage of any Swinburne student, I think. I can remember being here in the late 90s, I'd say, doing a project management course on the channel, which is the tunnel between London and Paris. And then we moved to another building called the AGSE in the program I was doing.
0: David, pretty early on in your career, you went to work overseas. How did that opportunity come about for you?
1: It's really interesting when I reflect back on my life and I reflect back on other people that I know. And at the time, I thought I was late going overseas. I think I was 29 or 30. And I arrived in London on September 24 after the sad events of September 11. That was an interesting time to arrive with somebody who'd just finished their master's. I just graduated from Swinburne. And I was told pretty much you've got a large level of financial services experience, but it's predominantly retail and call center. And, you know, it's going to be tricky to get a job. This is the worst the market we've seen. But my wife, and we'd just been recently married six months earlier, my wife was a nurse and she was able to attain a lot of work quite quickly. And I just stuck it out. And I was really lucky to land a job at a great organization called Prudential. And I went into their headquarters in London and had a role that, allowed me to do some things within that organization, measure their culture and how effective they were in delivering some change programs. And that really set me in good stead.
0: Once you went overseas, you spent a long time away. Could you talk a little bit about what that time overseas was like for you?
1: My wife and I said, we'll do two to three years. And my dad, when he saw me off at the airport, my cousin, who's 15 years older than me, he'd been away at that stage for probably 20 years. And my dad said, we'll see you in about 10. And my wife and I laughed. But we went to London and I really began enjoying actually just not only the work experience but actually living in London we made some great friends. My wife and I deliberately tried to avoid the expat Australian scene. So we tried to immerse ourselves within London within the British culture and I have to say I really really enjoyed that and I have some really close lifelong friends, you know, one of my best buddies in London, his dad's from India, his mum's from Malta, but he sounds very North London and another lady is A psychoanalyst and is from Canada originally, but now has been living in London for a long time. So it was just such a great experience. And two years turned into 10 very quickly.
0: So David, the time you spent overseas, was that a goal for you? And what did you do to work towards getting over there?
1: A couple of things. I think Many of us have dreams. So it was a dream initially, and I, I didn't know whether it would actually be possible. And I mentioned earlier my cousin and the, the family connection here. And my cousin is 15 years older than me, and my dad sort of served as a bit of a mentor to him. They both say the same name as John. And my cousin was living overseas. And every time he'd fly back in, every 18 months, he'd check in on me. And it was such a strong family connection. And he, Said, look, you're going to have dreams, but your dreams don't become a reality unless you take steps and break them out into goals. And so, for me, when I met my wife, it was a mutual attraction factor. Some we had some shared goals, and we wanted to live overseas. But I also knew that if I wanted to have a meaningful career overseas, I'd need to get myself educated. And so, you know, the first step was actually undertaking the education, and just being persistent and consistent with that effort to actually move towards that goal. And there's always hurdles. There's always always a barrier to something. And it's about being somewhat resilient and allowing you to build your resilience when those setbacks happen. And September 24, after September 11, that was a setback. There was other things that had happened. If I think about where my wife was nursing initially in London was South London. It was tough, right? Some of those hospitals are tough environments to work in, but we remain committed to achieving some of these things. And you know, I look back on tough things and you sort of remember them less. You remember the good times more. So I'm really grateful for the experience and so grateful for everybody that was sort of helped me and guided me along the way. There's so many people that I, I think of and I get visuals of them when I think about my time overseas and since I've come back to Australia as well.
0: So with all of that going on, what was it that actually drew you back to Australia?
1: Probably it was a really difficult decision to come back to Australia. So I was, I started at Prudential, then I did a couple of years management consulting and then I moved into Microsoft and I was working in the international IT team at Microsoft and I think I mentioned sometimes you can't connect the dots looking forward, you can only connect them looking backwards and, you know, that's very famous from a Steve Jobs sort of graduation speech. But my experience at Swinburne with the international students really prepared me well for Microsoft when I was working as part of the international IT team. And, At that stage, my wife and I discussed coming back to Australia and when my eldest daughter was about to start school in London, we made the really difficult decision to come back and it was hard, right? It's hard repatriating because as my wife said at the time, we'd lived half our adult life in London at that time and I very much felt part of London. You know, I was there, we became British citizens at that time, went to Westminster Town Hall to do that. And you very much felt part of that community and to come back and repatriate, it took me quite a time to rebalance and being part of the international team, team at Microsoft as well and to sort of step away from that and enter some things locally, it was different.
0: You spoke about rebalancing when you came back to Australia. Do you have any examples of some of the challenges um, of coming back?
1: I remember when we were talking pre-interview, we were talking about life in 2023 and how different it is compared to 2019. But when I was working at Microsoft between 2005, 6 and 2010, I'd often work maybe two, three days a week out of my apartment in London and attend the office for maybe two or three days a week. When I came back to Australia, there was an expectation for you to be back in the office and I was managing a large group of people. 200 odd people when I came back, and I didn't have an office. I had a corner table, and I had a lot of walk ups at work. And one of the things that I had to rebalance was actually how was I going to do the deep work, the work that I really need to think and immerse myself in outside of the transactional work, which is just as important, which is meeting and interactions with people and finding a quiet place to do that and finding the time to do that. And that's something that I've always enjoyed in my work is solving those complex problems, looking at things from a different range of perspectives and sharing that insight with some colleagues to really build out a broader perspective. And I think I was part of an international IT team. And one of the things that I'd say to every Australian is we are fantastic at our immigration. We have been fantastic. This country has been built on immigration, but sometimes I think we lose and dilute the diversity of thought with that immigration. And for me, diversity is not only representation of gender, representation of religious faith, sexual orientation. The real diversity is actually harnessing that community for their diversity of thought. And for me, I still think within Australia, compared to some other locations I've worked across the world, there is a opportunity for us to actually look at leveraging the talent that we have within our community and embracing that level of diversity of thought. And I'm just super grateful for the company I'm working for at the moment called Infotech. They really embody that. And I feel so privileged to be part of a global community. As I said, I start my mornings really early. And I think about my morning this morning, you know, I was talking to people in North America, Canada, and other parts of the world, and we were really embracing that diversity of thought. And if there's one thing that I think I need to recalibrate was to actually just be patient in growing that understanding within our community.
0: And I guess in your personal life as well, it was a big change. So were there any um, smaller challenges that you faced moving back to Australia?
1: A little quirky challenge is My wife actually, for whatever reason, has an allergic reaction to Australian wine and she's a very proud Australian. So we just drank European red wine after she started to have these allergic reactions. So that was a little quirky thing that we had to deal with. The other thing is when I left Australia in 2000, you know, communication was a lot via email. When I came back, there were social media platforms and they have been phenomenal for me, keeping connected with communities I formed overseas, whether it's our family and friends in Europe and in London in particular, or whether it's my ex-colleagues at Microsoft. You know, we're all on platforms and we remain very much connected and involved in one another's lives. And for me, that was a real benefit when I came back.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I can imagine. Um, And then how did things unfold for you from there on?
1: My wife and I had a plan And we always wanted to restore an old house. So we had an old house. When I came back from London, I spent three or four months ripping things out of the house and trying to repair them and then getting the professional trades in to help me. But it was great fun because we'd sort of always wanted to do that and we'd sort of immersed ourselves in shows like Grand Designs and it's been a great family home. So for me, I took three or four months to do that and to sort of reconnect with family and friends here, which was important because we'd been away for a long time and to re-familiarize myself with the Australian culture and just sort of socialize a little bit. And then I was very fortunate enough to land a job at KPMG. I managed a team of a couple of hundred people and I looked after their internal IT function and some external partners, client facing, involved me in some client work. And I leveraged a lot of the skills I picked up at Prudential University and at Microsoft around keynoting and presenting externally. And again, that was another dot that I couldn't see that I would join from that experience. And one day I received a phone call from somebody and said, look, there's a CIO role going at John Holland, which was a construction and engineering-based business headquartered in Melbourne at that time between Melbourne and Sydney. And we think you should really apply for it. And so I applied for the job. Having never worked in construction, I was really fortunate to be awarded the job and that sort of gave me a whole different perspective and I really enjoyed the two roles I've had in my career have been my time at Microsoft and at John Holland with strong founder-led cultures and great communities within them. So, that was a really good time in my career.
0: And so you had a couple of things that happened to you in your life that were a bit unorthodox. You lost your mother at the age of six and then spent a lot of time with your dad who was a travelling salesman. What was it like going through that?
1: Everybody has their own story. So I feel really fortunate that I've had great people around me during my life. My mum was born about two and a half blocks from here in Hawthorne, so in Manningtree Road. And my parents danced at the Hawthorne Town Hall and once I think it was in this lecture or very similar in the EM building, my dad came and saw me pro bono lecture here at Swinburne. So it's quite a special price, this precinct. And, you know, my family were avid Hawthorne football club supporters and used to go and watch Hawthorne at Glenferry Oval. So I've got quite a strong affinity here. But that said, like there's events in your life that are just character building. And as I said, everybody has their own story. And my dad, we were very fortunate. He remarried after my mother passed away. And I was fortunate. You know, I had a reasonable education. We traveled a lot. And I think I went to eight different schools over 10 years. And that helps you build some resilience. So I'm quite good... At meeting people, building connections, even though I'm actually an introvert. But, you know, my work has required me to express my thoughts. So the school experience was probably developed one of my few superpowers. I think everybody has a superpower and I'm able to sort of elicit thoughts from people and I can pick on nonverbal nuances in the room as well. So that's something that I think I developed over that period.
0: I mean, you've sort of touched on this, but um, looking back on your childhood, spending all that time with your dad, do you think it had quite an impact on you growing up?
1: You don't realize until certain things happen. So my dad passed away just over 12 months ago. I wrote a blog at the time about sort of the 10 life lessons that I had from my dad. And he was very old fashioned, but contemporary in his thinking. And he would always sort of encouraged myself and my sister to really not talk about people that much, but talk about events and ideas. So I think that really shaped me. He would never actually laugh at anybody. He would always laugh at a situation, but not make fun of somebody. And that was, that was also something that sort of my sister and I take forward in our lives. And he was probably somebody, if he had conflict, he actually wouldn't go out and have conflict directly with them. He would speak quietly to them if he needed to. And, you know, I always laugh and I ended sort of the eulogy and I ended the blog with, you know, if it's important, put it in writing. And I'm really living up to that aspect within my life, having written a couple of books.
0: Well, he sounds like an amazing man. So due to a range of different events, you never finished high school, and then you came to study at Swinburne as a mature age student. Why did you choose Swinburne in particular?
1: So I was employing a lot of people. I was working in the financial services sector at that time and I was employing a lot of people within that sector who actually had degrees in the job that they were coming in, which is a real entry-level role. And I actually felt really uncomfortable that I didn't have a tertiary qualification. So I think I was 24, 25 at the time and I decided – that I would go and obtain a tertiary qualification. And just given the fact that I had a friend attend Swinburne and the organization I was working with at the time had an affinity with Swinburne, I actually attended here. And it was just a really nice symbolic sort of rounding if you think about my family's history and coming to Swinburne. Ironically, I tried to start at the Hawthorne campus but I ended up at the Parang campus And then I did my undergrad and then I came to the Hawthorne campus to do my postgrad. So that's probably indirectly sort of spurred me on to do the postgrad so I could say I did something in the Hawthorne campus and be in this building.
0: Absolutely a full circle moment. (laughs) So David, you're a senior managing partner at APAC for Infotech. Could you start walking me through a day in your life as a senior managing partner?
1: My days are varied, so if I'm not traveling, I probably spend a third to 40% of my time traveling domestically several times internationally during the year, and... I start my mornings quite early. So, we were chatting earlier about the coffee and the reason I'm up at 5.36 is because a lot of my meetings are from North America and they'll begin sometimes at 6, sometimes at 7 a.m. My morning sort of begins with some global touch points, whether it's with our PR team, whether it's with some senior vice presidents that we're working on some strategies or my colleague here in APAC who looks after our sales organization and engage organization and we'll, we'll meet with our global colleagues and look at where the business is at And then I'll move through the day, either meeting with clients or actually meeting with some of my team. And it's really about providing insight into that team based on my my experience in the technology industry and being a business leader over the last 20 to 30 years and really looking at bringing the most amount of value we can in that advisory-based business to our clients and our members.
0: I'd imagine that when you study business and analytics, there are a lot of different roles you can get into. Um, If someone wants to be where you are one day, what type of roles would they be looking for?
1: When I was at Prudential, I met a great guy who's called Drew Watson, and he said to me, David, your 20s are for educating yourself your 30s are for gaining experience and your 40s are for harvesting that experience. And we often early in our lives think in such short timeframes. And I say, look to people now, when, I, when I'm in here lecturing potentially in a hall like this at Swinburne, I, I say, look, this is the great guidance I got, but you may not want to think about it in these timeframes, but think about it in those stages. And for me, business and analytics and your qualification here at Swinburne is just a vehicle to enable you to be employed, and when you're employed, to work out what you're really good at. And I think you need to find an intersection around what you're great at and the problem or the value that you bring to an organization. So I wouldn't necessarily look at a technical discipline, but I'd actually look at discovering those things and using your paid employment as an opportunity to evolve and explore the topics that you're interested in.
0: So what about those people who may be taking roles like this? What's a day in the life look like for a business and analytics graduate in their first job?
1: I think you end up in today's organization, you end up helping the organization interpret data. So if I look at my roles within the organizations I've worked in, it's not just crunching the numbers, it's actually providing the commentary on the data to enable the business to make some form of decision. And in the technology organizations that I've worked with and the business organizations that I support, one of the things that a former vice president that I worked for at Microsoft used to say, there's some things that will keep you employed, but there's not some things that will enable you to be successful in your employment. And for me, I think there's a couple of things at this point in time, avoiding a large cyber event will keep you employed using insights and analytics and data within an organization will actually make your employment successful. And so for any graduate who is looking at business or analytics really look at how you can interpret the data that's being provided to the organization and provide some form of fresh level of insight. And ideally, if you can help the organization differentiate itself in its marketplace or what it's doing internally, so it can accelerate some initiatives.
0: And if there's anyone who's just starting their career and they want to be where you are someday, how would you suggest that they get there?
1: Wow. For me, I think you need to experiment. I've worked across a range of sectors and I I remember I I go back to a conversation that I had with Drew one evening, maybe at Prudential University or somewhere else. He says, you know, the really successful people that I've seen within their careers have been able to take their experience and work across industries. And if there's one thing that I would have liked to have done earlier is to probably work in different geographies internationally. So I was really fortunate that I was in this international IT team at Microsoft and organizations like Prudential gave me experiences across Europe. But I would encourage people to explore not only the roles but the geographies that they work in and also really challenge the industries that they work in. I love the construction industry. When I went out four or five years ago after leaving the financial services sector and set up my own advisory business and wrote a couple of books – A lot of my clients were from the construction industry because I just formed this natural affinity with my colleagues that had moved on to other organizations. And if somebody had told me that sort of five or six years earlier, I wouldn't have believed them that that would have been possible. So really experiment within the industries you're working in, experiment within your geographies. And I say this to everybody, remember my dad's mantra, look at events and think about ideas and talk very, very little about people.
0: That is amazing advice. I need to remember that for myself as well. <laughs> so now it's time for our quick fire round. I've got a few food-related questions that I'm going to ask you in rapid succession. The rules are you have 10 seconds to answer each question and you have to answer with the first thing that comes to your mind.
1: That's frightening.
0: All right, let's go. <laughs> if business and analytics were a food, what would it be?
1: Potentially for some organisations, a watermelon green on the outside and red in the middle.
0: That is amazing. What is your favorite condiment?
1: Condiment? Ooh, mustard with a good steak. Something spicy and hot.
0: What's the most unique or exotic dish you've ever tried and did you like it?
1: I am thinking back. I think somewhere in Asia, I was offered possibly monkey, but I declined.
0: Interesting. I wonder what that would taste like. What is the secret sauce to your success?
1: Persistence. And having a great partner. I think who you partner with is really important around you realising your potential.
0: And then finally, does pineapple belong on pizza?
1: I would have said pre-25 and travelling to Europe, yes. But after living and working across Europe, no.
0: Correct answer. Yeah. (laughs) I sat on
1: the fence a little bit there though, didn't
0: I? (laughs) Yeah, but you came to the right side by the
1: end. (laughs) Great.
0: Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today, David.
1: It's always a pleasure to come back to Swinburne. I love this place. It's part of me. So thank you for having me.
0: You're so welcome. Thanks for listening to Get Hungry, a podcast from Swinburne University of Technology where you get a taste of what career success looks like. If you like what you heard and you're keen to study at Swinburne, where you can get your own real industry experience, then head to the website, Swinburne.edu.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Get Hungry, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. This show was recorded in and around the Swinburne campus in Hawthorne on Wurundjeri land, featuring some of the great cafes and most interesting buildings. The show was produced with strategy and production support by Wavelength Creative. I'm your host, Lana Freed. And thanks for listening to Get Hungry.